welcome to the Gloria Purvis podcast, where we talk about the issues in the Catholic Church and in society that matter to you and to me, and I'm glad you're here to have that conversation with me. My guest today is Michael Heinlein. Michael is the editor of simplycatholic.com from Our Sunday Visitor and the author and editor of the book, Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood. I thought it was important to talk with Michael because I wanted to talk about these six holy African-Americans on a path to sainthood. And I wanted to dispel some myths about them because these people were in a deep struggle to practice their faith, a deep struggle with a society at the time that really limited how Black people could move and act and be, even within the Catholic Church. But yet they defied those negative constraints, if you will. They defied what the larger dominant society thought of them, thought of what they could do. They defied that. And they had courage and a deep faith to pursue justice with charity and love. And they had the kind of resilience that I think we need today and we need to remember and think about and try to model as we ourselves try to live our faith, as we ourselves also try to pursue justice. It's interesting when you think about these holy six that their lives span from the 18th century to the 20th century with Thea Bowman dying in 1990. I mean, that's so recent. And so these are people, I think, that we don't have to reach too far back to try to relate to them, to try to understand them. And I can tell you, certainly as a Black woman in the United States, as a Black Catholic, I completely identify with and understand the unique situation in which they lived and how they struggled to practice their faith and some of the perceptions even or misperceptions that people would have about them because they're Black, because they're Catholic, and because they're Black Catholics. And I also don't want people to over-spiritualize them, to make them into spiritual doormats, if you will, that because they were faithful Catholics that they in no way, shape, or form would have actively sought justice because they did. And in fact, their faith was a springboard for being able to pursue what they did and live how they did, despite the animosity, despite the opposition, even from the co-religionists. And so there's something beautiful about these six African-Americans, these holy men and women in their witness of the faith at a time that was overtly hostile. And in some cases, their activities were illegal And in some cases, their lives could have been lost because they decided to fully practice their faith. And it wasn't a faith that was an adjunct. It was a faith that was fully theirs, that they owned. And they weren't looking for permission or approval to just be themselves fully within the church. And so there's something in particular, I think, that's special about these six African-Americans, Venerable Pierre Toussaint. Venerable Henriette DeLille, Venerable Augustus Tolton, Servant of God Mary Lang, Servant of God Thea Bowman, and Servant of God Julia Greeley that we really need to take into account. It's Black Catholic History Month, which was founded actually shortly after Sister Thea Bowman's death in 1990. She died in March of 1990, and in July of 1990, the National Black Catholic Clergy Caucus of the United States designated November as Black Catholic History Month. And why do they do that? Because we need to celebrate the long history and proud heritage of Black Catholics. It's a time to remember the saints and souls of the African diaspora, of which these holy six in the United States are certainly a part of that diaspora. 
The Gloria Purvis Podcast is a production of America Media, and America is committed to hosting very real, honest conversations in the Catholic Church today. These conversations should educate, inspire, and challenge us to think more critically, more faithfully, and that's our mission. And on today's episode, we try to do exactly that by talking about Black Catholics on the road to sainthood, Black Catholics whose voices and stories maybe you didn't even know existed. And that's what we're here to do. We want to bring those people who are often not seen in our church to the church's attention. So if this podcast is meaningful to you, please support it by getting a digital subscription to America. How do you do that? Go to americamagazine.org slash subscribe and sign up today. The link is in the show notes. Stick around. My conversation with Michael Heinlein is up next. Michael, thank you so much for joining me to talk about these Holy Six on the road to sainthood. Thanks for that. It's a pleasure, Gloria. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and I think it's especially important that we have this discussion during November, which is Black Catholic History Month, so that people can know about these African-Americans who are right now in the process on the path to canonization. So who are these six people, these six individuals? Well, there are six individuals of very diverse backgrounds, although they are all Catholic and they are all Mm African-American. One of them is mixed race. But Pierre Toussaint was a hairdresser, a former slave from New York City, who was a great model of charity. We have Henriette de Lille, who was a Creole background, so she was mixed race and had a great difficulty finding a way to religious life and ended up founding her own order, which we can perhaps discuss the positives and negatives of that reaction, that result of being rejected from religious life because of the color of her skin. And then we had Father Augustus Tolton, the first identifiably African-American priest from the United Mm. States who suffered because of the color of his skin and pursuing the priesthood. And then those three are venerable. And then we have three that are on the beginning stages of canonization. We have the servants of God, Mother Mary Lang, who was a co-foundress of the Oblate Sisters of Providence in Baltimore, was an educator and a very, very learned woman. And then we have the servant of God, Julia Greeley, herself also a former slave who ended up in Denver and converted to the faith and was kind of a one-woman act of charity and the, mm-hmm. uh, the mercy of God really flowed through her life. And then finally, the servant of God, Sister Thea Bowman, who was also a convert at a very young age and experienced many hostilities in the convent when she was entering religious life, but who pursued the beauty of preaching the gospel, singing the gospel, and proclaiming the liberty and love of the Lord to a culture that still needed to hear it, even though she was so many years after many of these others. And I think it's we need to let people know that any of these six, when they're canonized, whoever makes it first would be the first Black Catholic saint in the U.S., right? Yes. I mean, so we're waiting for the beatification for any of them. Mm-hmm. The closest to that would be Mother Henriette de Lille, who has a, a miracle currently being investigated by the Holy See's Congregation for the Causes of Saints. But that doesn't mean that she'll be the first one beatified. Mm-hmm. And then after that, we need one more miracle for canonization for any of these. So 
it's really hard to say who the Lord is going to raise up first. But one of these six, unless somebody just busts forward that we don't know yet <laughs> at some point in the future, but one of them will be the first Black Catholic saint in the United States. How does that strike you? I mean, does that seem like, wow, really? The first this long, this far in to, you know, as long as the Catholic Church has been in the United States? What do you think about that? Well, I look forward to that day. I remember very well the day that Father Tolton was declared venerable a couple years ago, and I thought, thank God, we're finally a step closer. Mm -hmm. Maybe he will be the one, you know, because his cause is pretty solid and there's a lot of documentation. But I look forward to this day. I think so many of us do. This is a real absence in the life of the church and in the communion of saints. We know that these people lived holy lives, and we believe that they're saints. That's why we work to promote them, and that's why we pray to them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's time for the Lord's action in their lives to be manifested through miracles, and the church can recognize that, and then we can declare these persons who we believe them to be. Right. Who we believe them to be. That's such a really good way of saying it. And, you know, I know when the book was coming out, the book Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood, there were some questions like, well, why is this white guy promoting this book? I mean, why him? And why are even white Catholics participating in this to write about any of these Black Catholics on the road to sainthood? And full disclosure for our listeners, I wrote a reflection on Servant of God, Mary Lang. But there were others who wrote who were not Black Catholics that wrote about this. So how do you address that kind of, I guess, observation, critique? How do you take it? How do you respond to that? Well, my response to that has been that we're the Catholic Church and that we are born of the Pentecost experience in which the many tongues of the apostles were sent out to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the world. And so when we're talking about the canonization of saints, we're talking about a real activity of the whole church. Mm. These people, being African Americans, mean a great deal to the black Catholic community in the United States. That's undeniable. But they mean a great deal or should mean a great deal to all Catholics. And so what I wanted to make sure is in bringing about this book was that these were not names who were totally unknown in the wider Catholic community. Mm -hmm. And no one else was stepping up to the plate to do this as I saw it. So I just felt that the Lord was calling me to try to help tell these stories because I think that they're so vital for the life of the church, particularly in this country. And you've been at this for a while trying to promote people to know who they are. You wrote a little pamphlet before you wrote a book. Why stick with it? What's been urging you on to stick with it? I love their stories. I love these people. I have gotten to know them. When you read and research about people, of course, you really get to form a relationship with them. Mm -hmm. I'm particularly drawn to Father Tolton and Mother Henriette DeLille. I just feel real closeness to them. The story of their suffering, which is so unique to them, but so common to us all, isn't it? Yeah. That's really something that can speak to all Catholics. But then on top of that, of course, it's the matter of making the entire church aware of the contributions of Black Catholics to the life of the church, Mm -hmm. which, of course, is so often neglected. We think of how racism exists in the church, existed in the time of these individuals, exists even today in places. And These individuals show us a way forward. These individuals are a way to overcome because they found ways to allow the spirit to move. They allowed ways for God to act, even when human beings in the church were prohibiting that. 
You know, that does seem to be a big question now, like why remain Catholic considering how other Catholics have behaved, whether it's in this area of racism, which, you know, when you read of the history of the church in the United States, it's, it's shocking. But at the same time, you notice that people like Venerable Augustus Tolton working along with Daniel Rudd to found the first National Black Catholic Congress and their work to evangelize the wider Black community to Catholicism, I think it does sort of make you say, okay, well, well, why did they do it? And then what does that say to me today around all the things that are happening in the United States with Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, the church grappling with its own history of racism in the United States? And I will tell you, for me, what it comes back to is the truth of the faith. I mean, Daniel Rudd was like, the truth of this faith is why we need to give it a shot. We need to give it a look. And I also think Venerable Augustus Tolton, when you read about his life, you know, having to leave the country to go to Rome to be ordained a priest. I mean, that's just, wow. Yeah, no American seminary would accept him. Isn't that, I mean, what is, how did that impact you when you first learned about that? Well, how did that strike you? I remember the first time I was learning about him many years ago, I think I was in college, and I read that fact, and I just kind of paused because I went to a Catholic high school where I would say at least a third of the student body was African-American, and I had always just kind of grown up in that environment where I thought, well, the church was always open to everybody, you know? Mm -hmm. And so in college, I really started to realize the reality and Reading about Augustus Tolton showed that this had deep roots, you know, in the church in this country. Mm -hmm. It is something, right, that they said yes to God. And then for Tolton in particular, going to seminary out of the country and then coming back, how he was treated. You know, there might be some people who are unaware of what Tolton had to suffer once he came back. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, he, well, he wasn't expecting to come to America. He thought, well, the, the American seminaries have rejected me. And so when he went to Rome to study for the Pontifical Missionary Seminary, the Urbanianum, he thought that he was going to Africa, and then the cardinal prefect of the congregation said to him, well, if your country's as enlightened as they think they are, it's time for them to realize that they need to see a black man with a Roman collar. And so he went back home to Quincy, Illinois, which is where his family had settled after they fled slavery in Missouri, which was a very harrowing story in and of itself. But back home in Quincy, as a parish priest, he was rejected by both members of the faithful and members of the clergy. And so he had to seek asylum, so to speak. He wasn't worried about himself. That's the interesting thing. We can see that from his letters. He was worried about the fact that he was not able to minister as fully as he should be able to that he thought that he was able to give more of himself, and he wanted to do that in an environment that was accepting. So he sought to go to Chicago and was accepted there. But it was not an easy path for him coming to the United States at all. So hearing this about Tolton and the rejection and then knowing the difficulties, do you think that there is a way that we can make repair for that kind of sinfulness that happened at that time in the church with Tolton? Well, yes. I mean, we need to talk about it. We need to acknowledge it. We can't move forward in any way unless we've done that. Mm. But beyond that, we need to do what we can to tell that story as well. That's part of the healing, right? That we not only have admitted it, but we're making it known. And I hoped that my book would help Catholics understand that. And this book was meant to be an entry point because 
as you and I both know, there are a lot of Catholics in this country who are not ready to hear this. Yeah, that's true. We'll be back in a minute. I would think that after everything that's gone on from George Floyd, Maude Arbery, Breonna Taylor, that people would be ready to say, you know what, we need to talk about this. We need to look at how we wounded the church in the United States so we can help heal her, you know? But there is something about this struggle, this trying to live the faith while the wider world is hostile. And then sometimes even in the church, you find this hostility. But of course, one of my favorites, since I wrote a reflection on her, is Mother Lang. And it's for a number of reasons that I feel this closeness to her. Number one, my first teacher ever in a Catholic school in first grade was a religious sister who was the oblate sister of Providence. And that's Mother Lang's community. She founded them. And a Sister Mary of Mercy, may her soul rest in peace. And she came from the mother house in Baltimore down to Charleston at my Catholic school that was all Black to teach all these children. And she just loved us. And then in doing my research for your book to find out that Mother Lang, too, passed through Charleston, just sort of did a number on me. I was like, look at God. You know, <laughs> that this woman walked the same streets a couple centuries before I, you know, came in contact with her community. But I just feel like God is so generous. And and sometimes he has a sense of humor, too, mm, mm. that he would have her actually pass through the very place where her saying yes to God and creating this community allowed for all these Black children to be educated by her religious sisters. Just amazing. It's a beautiful story, isn't it, Mother Lang? Mm -hmm. That she moved along, as you say, from Charleston. I think she stopped in Norfolk, Virginia for a while. Yes. You wonder, we don't have any records, but you wonder what was going on. Was she not welcomed there? Yeah, wow. She was an intelligent woman, as we know. She had many gifts to share, and she was just looking for a place to be able to share them. Well, I could tell you in South Carolina, in Charleston at the time that she passed through, that if you were a free Black person, as she was, South Carolina made you pay a tax. <laughs> <laughs> made you pay a tax to just be living there free. So I would imagine it wasn't like the best, most welcoming place. I mean, she was educated. She spoke English, French, Spanish. She wasn't poor. Her father was able to send her money. She was really something. And I keep wondering if she were not a Black person and had that kind of standing that she you know, would have had if she were a white woman, would have, things have been different for her in terms of being able to start a community? Yeah, undoubtedly. The church really, I guess, benefited from that in the end. God reads straight with crooked lines, they say. Yeah. And if she would have settled somewhere else, we don't know if that beautiful religious community would have been founded and if all the many people, including yourself, would have been impacted by their generous ministry to the church. But that's how God works, right? We have to recognize that that's also part of this story. Well, what do you think? So let's think about the time frame in which, let's say, for example, Mary Lang lived. Do you think the way in which she decided, you know what, we are going to serve these African-American children, we are going to educate them, how that would tie up? Is that like a in your assessment, is that some means of social justice, educating these children during that time frame? Oh, without a doubt. I mean, she was responding to a need that was plaguing the children of Baltimore at the time mm -hmm. because of racism and injustice. Mm -hmm. So the church's works of mercy are also works of justice, aren't they, in many cases? Yeah. And so she was responding to that need and doing what no one else wanted to do. 
I don't know the specific laws of Baltimore, Maryland at the time, but I suspect she may have possibly found herself in legal trouble. I know Henriette DeLille did when she was teaching children of color in New Orleans. Yeah. She was breaking the law. Well, I mean, let's think about it. Mary Lang established, what is it, the Obley Sisters of Providence in 1829. Mm. So slavery was still going on. Right. And it was the first successful congregation for African-American women in the United States. And so thinking about operating during this time period as a free Black woman while there's still slavery for Black people and the difficulty, actually, of moving about in society in that way and then having these children and educating them. I mean, I keep thinking about it and I'm like, these women were courageous. Mm. She was courageous. I think you just really had to trust in the Lord to be able to do what she did. And then also knowing that there was some animosity toward Black women even being religious. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Yeah, it was the same thing that Henriette DeLille encountered in New Orleans, too. That, Mm -hmm. you know, they didn't want Henriette or Mother Lang at first to wear habits. Yeah. There were, and in fact, with Henriette DeLille's story, there were religious women in New Orleans who were, of course, white, who were complaining to the archbishop about how they did not want her to wear a habit. And she was mixed race. Yeah. They were just, that was, that was just vehement racism. Yeah. Well, you know, I talk a lot when I go around and talk about racism. I talk about the fact that we need to revisit our conceptions of holiness in the church because in the society, there is stigma attached to blackness. Like it's evil. It's, you know, you're dirty. You're you're not holy. You're not chaste. You're just all the opposite things of virtue and everything associated with vice. So I could imagine in Delille's time, what in the 1850s, when she was professing as a religious, that that really would have been a shock to the social sentiment, I imagine, around Black women. Yeah, perseverance is really one of the highlighting virtues that describes Henriette's life and and all those who have followed in her footsteps. Because as I had mentioned earlier, as we were just discussing, the fact that no religious community would accept her is very significant to her story because either she accepted that or she didn't. It's a very sad commentary, isn't it, that Henriette DeLille had to start her own religious community in order to profess the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Yeah, the sisters of the Holy Family, yes. But then at the same token, if you think about it, it's an amazing thing that she did. She shouldn't have had to do it, but she did it. Right. And that's the thing that we have to wrestle with, isn't it? Yeah, that she did it all against all societal norms. She did it. She still did it. And it does make me think about, you know, that living their faith meant working for change in society, a structural change in this case of actually saying, you know what? No community is going to accept me. So I'm going to start a community so other women of color, other Black women can also dedicate themselves to God in this way. Yeah, and and it wasn't even it wasn't even just the religious vocation. I mean, of course, that's important and central to her story. Mm-hmm. But it was also how can I care for these people that society won't let be cared for? Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. And that's also intrinsic to the story of so many of these individuals that they had to fight just to show love, mm. just to show mercy, just to sow the seeds of peace. They had to fight for that. It's astonishing, isn't it? It is astonishing. And it's and if we think about they had to fight to show love, they had to fight to show mercy, fight to show peace. 
So they fought for social justice. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just by living the faith. I mean, really, right? Yeah. There was a story also with Servant of God, Julia Greeley, that she also broke societal norms because she also tried to show charity to poor white people. And mm. because of the racism at the time, it would be shameful, I guess, and just so unacceptable for white people to receive charity from a Black person that she would go at night so that nobody would know that's right. that these people were receiving charity from her. I mean, that's mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. She'd have to go under the cloud of darkness in order to let Christ's love meet these people. When you think about it, and you were talking earlier, when I think of Julie Greeley, I also think of this story of a white religious sister who apparently made a comment to her once. You were saying there was this connotation that, that people of color are dirty and so on and so forth. And this sister said to her something like, you know, you're so holy or something. And one day when you die, you'll go to heaven and you'll be as white as those angels up there on the altar, pointing at the the high altar of the church mm-hmm. or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's just astonishing to think right. that these people were such models of love. Julia Greeley was certainly a, devoted to the Sacred Heart and showed the Lord's love in everything she did. And mm-hmm. to hear that, what do you think she felt? You know? I know. And she also wasn't allowed to rent a pew because, you know, of her poor wardrobe. Right. They said it would make her ineligible to rent a pew in the front of the church. In the front. Yes. In in the the front front. of the church. Oh, you're not dressed well enough to rent in the front of the church. You might be able to afford to rent it, but we're going to add this thing that you aren't dressed properly, which we understand is just get onto the back of the church. We don't need to see you up front. What happened to the first shall be last and the last shall be first, huh? (laughs) Amen. And, you know, to think about the great offense against God that these things were happening within the church. It's a denial of their humanity, of denial of their, their made in the image and likeness of God. It's a denial of that. Mm-hmm. And also that in that religious sister's comment to servant of God, Julia Greeley, she cannot imagine a heaven where there are Black people. I mean, if you right. think about yes. it. it right. Was like, I was like, what happened? What happened? What? And it also makes me question, like, what kind of faith formation that these people receive and what kind of faith formation are we receiving today that could help us not see so narrowly, not miss the generosity of God, not miss the beauty of all of God's creation and and the way he created us and that any soul can get to heaven. I think about this and I'm like, how can people be so colored by the thinking of the day that they miss the beauty and broadness of who God is inviting everybody. He's inviting all of us to come to him. And what do you think people who read this, people who read this book, what are you hoping that their takeaway is from reading Black Catholics on the Road to Sainthood? I hope it helps them see, first of all, that the greatest things that humanity accomplishes, according to Catholics, are in these six individuals and more, and that racism has no place in the church. And then ultimately, you know, that we're all called to the holiness that we see in their lives, that they can be models for everybody. They're not just models for black Catholics, which they are and they must be, but they also must be models for me too. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. Do you think that that's a difficulty? Maybe that some people might have, like that they maybe might have a difficulty seeing these six African-Americans as somebody that can be models for them. Why might that be? Well, I only look at how successful these causes are, that they have difficulty 
raising the funds that they need. They have difficulty in spreading the story of these individuals. These six should be household names, as are many other canonization candidates among American Catholics. Mm. And so I look at all of that and I say to myself, why is that the case? I don't know that I have any one answer, but I knew that that's why I wanted to write this book, was to help bring a solution to that problem. Was there any point, in, in case people don't know, you are a white Catholic male, was there any conversion moment for you in understanding the sin of racism? I mean, as I had mentioned earlier, I grew up in a high school, which was right on the southern edge of Gary, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And everybody may know that Gary, Indiana is uh, predominantly African-American, predominantly poor. And so the Catholic high school that I attended there was about a third African-American. Right. The grade school I attended, not so. So the high school opened my eyes to racial diversity. I think also having family who are mixed race mm-hmm. has been something that also has helped me understand some of these issues and to be much more sensitive and much more understanding and also compelling to me to work for greater racial harmony. Right. And I just want to make sure that I'm opening up myself mm-hmm. to, you know, Bishop Perry often says, we need to schedule diversity into our lives. He contributed to the book. He's an auxiliary bishop in Chicago. And he says that quite often. And I, I think that's true. And that's one way that I could be a little bit more aware mm-hmm. to the situation of Black Catholics today. Well, I hope people know that these are people that they can ask for their intercessory prayer. We're going to put a link to the book in the show notes so people can see this book, get the book, learn about these holy six on the path. And I'm also hoping that people will, in encountering them, discover some of the uncommon, I mean, the uncommon faithfulness of these Black Catholics staying in the church amidst a lot of difficulty, rejection, but persevering in the faith, and that there's something beautiful in that. And I'm hoping that they also are a witness to people today who might be tempted to to step out the doors of the church because of certain things that they've been seeing happening in the church or people perceiving a lack of sensitivity or even rebuke around racial justice issues. And I'm just begging my brothers and sisters to hold tight. Let's, Let's ask for the intercession of these holy six And let's hold tight in the practice of the faith and persevere in this faith, which we believe to be true. Is there anything else you wanted to add before we start to wrap to the end of the podcast? I would just also like to encourage all of my brothers and sisters in the Catholic faith to help make these individuals known. You know, this little book that we put together is just one aspect of kind of the massive amount of work that needs to go into spreading word about these individuals, spreading materials so that people can pray to them. Because if what we say is true, that we want them beatified and canonized, we need to be praying to them. We need to get God to work through them. So I'm grateful to see that there are many other efforts of helping people get to know about these individuals. I don't expect that I have the final word. I know that very well. And I just am trying as best I can with only the skill set that the Lord has given me to make them known. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping people will also donate to the causes for these particular. Absolutely. 
I hope people donate and support their cause that way by making donation to the actual causes for each of these individuals. Yes. Well, we'll just pray that more people will get to know them and love them and ask for their intercession and help so that one day, one of them or all of them can finally be canonized as saints in the Catholic Church. What a witness that would be for the African-American Catholic community here. Let us pray for that day. (laughs) Indeed. Michael, thank you so much for joining me on the Gloria Purvis podcast. It's always good to talk to you. You too. Thank you so much. I'm so glad you're tuning into the Gloria Purvis podcast and journeying with me through these important and sometimes challenging conversations. Please share this episode with a friend or family member and be sure to subscribe to the Gloria Purvis podcast on your podcast app. Leave us a review if you can. I would love to hear from you. And by the way, you can follow me on Twitter at Gloria underscore Purvis and on Instagram at I am Gloria Purvis. The Gloria Purvis podcast is a production of America Media. It's produced by Sebastian Gomes and engineered by Frank Tucson. You can learn more about America Media at americamagazine.org. We'll see you next time. <laughs>